So Tuesday night is uh, uh, Kol Nidring, and uh, because most people forget from uh, year to year, I want to just remind you of the deal. There's no Yom Kippur Kiddush. <laughs> and you can't even light candles before your meal, because if you lit the candles before the meal, that would have begun Yom Kippur, and then you couldn't eat the meal. So the deal is, you have a huge meal, and it's considered a double mitzvah to eat more on Kol Nidre than any other time during the year. And you end your meal after your cup of tea or whatever it's going to be, you light the candles, and then it's off to shul. That's not what I'm going to talk about. <clears throat> Through some distant cousin, my, my kid brother, also a, a rabbi, just retired, unearthed a new family photograph. It was of our father's parents' 50th wedding anniversary back in Detroit. Looks like they're in their 70s. Of their nine children, five survived childhood in Russia, two more were born here. My dad was the last one. There are a lot of faces, easily over 30 people in the photo. They're all gathered around a big banquet table trying to look their best. Most of them are gone now. You probably have such photos in your own albums, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. First, I need to tell you about my cousin Marty. He's only a few years older than me, so at family gatherings, we would hang out together. He was a musician, became a sales rep for a medical equipment company, wound up in Maryland, where he was the president of a Reconstructionist congregation there. I think it was Bethesda. He was a good man. Not long ago, I got a note from Marty's wife, Phyllis, informing me that he had died of a heart attack. Now I can tell you the story. So here I am, poring over the faces of this newly discovered event from the archives, trying to identify them. This wasn't quite that easy. As you may have begun to realize, after 50, 60 years, people's bodies, their faces, they change, sometimes quite a bit. Seated in the center are Bobby and Zeta. Well, there are Dorothy and Art, and Sam and Sarah, Fanny and Morris, everyone. And of course, there's my father. But wait, where, where's my mom? Where, where am I? It took me a moment. Of course, my parents hadn't met yet. We weren't there. So I began searching the crowd for Marty, but all I could find was his older brother, Barry. And then it hit me. Oh my God, Marty hasn't even been born yet and he's already dead. 
I set the photo down. My hand trembled. It's like that with us, too. Someday, someone will look at your face in a photo, but you won't even have been born, or you'll probably already have died. Poof, just like that. Welcome to the high holy days. (laughs) For just these few days, we are invited to rise above the whole thing. Rise above the boundaries of our lifespans and see how the whole deal is woven into a much, much larger tapestry. This thing has uh, five images. You just heard the first one. Part two, the silver screen. We all move backward and forward in our years, not so much seeing the future or remembering the past, but understanding how they are joined through what we do and what we say. We realize we can, if we like, re-enter our past and strike up a conversation with who we used to be. It's easier to watch this sort of thing in the movies. And one of my favorite scenes from Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest It's set in the tourist cafeteria beneath Mount Rushmore. Eva Marie Saint is supposed to fake shooting Cary Grant to convince the evil James Mason of her loyalty. Marie pulls the pistol from her purse. If you look closely, you will notice that in the background of the luncheon crowd there, a little boy. Couldn't be more than eight or nine years old. He is sitting with his back to the action. Unfortunately, however, he has rehearsed the scene one too many times. We know this because he covers his ears about ten seconds before the gun is fired. He's been through it all before. When he gets a little older, he will learn that these instant replays are not interruptions, but gifts. Or, if you like, we could consider the first Superman movie. For narrative accuracy, it must establish that Superboy could run faster than a speeding locomotive. So the scene takes place on an express train while a little girl looks out the window at the young superboy winning the race with the speeding train. Look, Mama, she exclaims, see how fast that boy is running. But her mother is preoccupied with her newspaper and other things and doesn't even look up. But here's the thing, the actress playing the girl's mother 
used to play the role of Lois Lane in the Superman television series. The little girl is talking to the woman who will fall in love with Superman. One, one, one more image, I love this stuff. In his novel, The Right Stuff, Tom Wolfe chronicles the beginnings of the American manned space flight program. One of the early scenes in the film, uh, the movie version, takes place in the Mojave Desert at a tavern where those early test pilots would hang out after a day's work. The bartender was a wizened old coot who served up drinks and sage quips to the men who had the right stuff. One of those pilots was the young Chuck Yeager, played by Sam Shepard, a handsome, swashbuckling, horse-riding pilot chasing the gremlins who lived beyond the sound barrier. The man playing the role of the bartender and counseling the young Chuck Yeager was the real-life Chuck Yeager. I wonder, is there any advice you'd like to give the person who is now playing the person you were several decades ago? <laughs> Part three, crossing the Vistula. This occasional dissolution of time can also happen within a single lifespan. Decades ago, I used to commute from Boston to New York City to teach my weekly seminar at the Hebrew Union College. Usually the first faculty member to arrive at the College Institute, I was delighted but surprised to find there my own spiritual master, Eugene Borowitz. It was a bitterly cold day, and the wind chill had turned the canyons of Manhattan into tundra. There we were, I in my high-tech down parka, and he in an ankle-length fur coat and Polish hat. Since he'd always been drawn to, shall we say, eccentric outfits, I, I was not surprised. The last time I invited him up to my speak to my congregation in Boston, he showed up in a green plaid sport coat. When I gave it a quizzical look, he explained in that basso voice of his that when he saw it on the rack, it had whispered, buy me, buy me please. And so he did. But his outfit, you know, like Marcel Proust, reminded me of one of the most beautiful Shabbos's of my life maybe 25 years before when I met him. When I was just one of his students, he had invited me to join him and some other members of his congregation who studied together on Shabbos afternoons at an estate overlooking Long Island Sound. Our learning ended an hour or so before Havdalah. Come, Larry, he said, let us go for a walk. It was a very cold evening, and walking through the snow was the last thing I wanted to do. But it was my Rebbe's invitation, so I suited up. He was wearing a big fur coat that day, 
and he looked like a Polish Rebbe. We trudged through the driven snow and the vanishing twilight. I had one of American Judaism's great minds all to myself for an hour. I don't remember a thing he said. All I remember is his teaching presence and a kind of joke he made. Here we are, Larry, he said, crossing the frozen river Vistula. That's all I remember. <laughs> the crossing the river Vistula gag. But seeing him now in front of me at the college in his fur coat brought it all back to me. And I told him about the river Vistula joke but he only smiled and without missing a beat said, and the only reason I said it then was so that we could share this sweet moment now. <laughs> it occurs to me that we may have here a new Jewish subcategory of deja vu. Not the strange sensation of having been there before, but rather, the even stranger sensation of, for at least a moment, understanding now why you were there then. Part four, transparent photo slides. I'll give you another image. Since it's just a few days before my 75th birthday, reunion from a high school, fair. <laughs> I guess I'm permitted to quote myself. In my book, God Was in This Place, I think this is one of the neatest things I ever wrote, I recorded an imaginary conversation between Jacob and his grandfather, Abraham. The boy is asking about what it was like to have a vision of God, to be that close. Did you ever see the Merkava, the chariot of Ezekiel? What was it like? Once, replied Abraham, I, I think I did. I mean, once it was clear to me that I was, how do they say it, panim el panim? face to face. I took your father, Isaac, up on Mount Moriah, but what I saw there was not awesome or thrilling. It was just frightening. Did you see a likeness of God the way Ezekiel? No, I saw no image that I can remember. It was just terrifying. But what did you see? I saw how our people would endure slavery for 400 years, and how after all that degradation, God would set us free. That, that sounds pretty good, said Isaac. I know what you're saying, Abraham replied, but when I saw it, I saw it all at once. To see someone a slave, that's painful. To see someone free, that's a great joy. But to see them all at the same time, to see the wedding invitation pasted 
on top of a birth announcement, to see that pasted on top of a funeral announcement, to see that pasted on top of a newspaper clipping announcing a divorce, to see that on top of you can fill in the blanks. See it all at the same time. That's just terrible. The slavery and the freedom are always present within one another. The joy contains the sadness, the sadness, the joy. You try to untangle it all, to set them on each its own stage so you can have them one at a time. But when I saw the divine chariot, Abraham said, I saw everything at once. Like a stack of photographic transparencies superimposed on top of one another. I was unable to cry because I knew I would also laugh. I could not feel joy because I knew the price that would be paid. Welcome to the high holy days. Five, the last word. My mom died almost two decades ago. She once told me that as you get older, it only gets worse. What what are you saying, mom? Oh, no matter what you say, God always has the last word. This does strike me as wise, especially coming from a woman who has refined to high art the skill of getting in the last word. But it does make me wonder, what exactly is the last word? Well, if you and God have been adversaries, then the last word might be the divinely triumphalist, I'm God, you're not. Or even worse, I'm God, you're dead. If you've been friends and developed a decent working relationship, though, the last word might be, thanks for all your help. But if, after all those years, you've come to understand God as the infinite one of whom you are but a finite dimension, then the last word would be, I'm God, so are you. Or maybe just, hey, what took you so long? Before we begin our journey, we are one with all creation. Then life begins and we find ourselves discreet individuated and autonomous. And after the journey ends, God gets the last word. Welcome back. We are dimensions of the divine psyche. And when we raise our consciousness, we not only realize that we have never really been apart from our divine source at all, The Hasidic master Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin taught that the first premise of faith is to believe that there is no such thing as happenstance. Every deal, every detail, every deed, every word, small or great, they are all from the Holy One. Welcome to the High Holy Days.